when are people going to see that nothing ain't never going to change unless somebody finally makes up his mind to stand up and fight? Damn. Netrich Radio presents Hopping Mad with Will McLeod and Arliss Bunny. Now, here's Will and Arliss. Welcome back, finally, to Hopping <laughs> Mad. I'm Will McLeod. And I'm Arliss Bunny. And I think I should probably start out by saying, what the hell happened? Um, it's my fault. It's all on me. The, the fact is that uh, I kind of hit the wall. It was, it was entire. Basically, it was really unexpected, and kind of a, a series of um, short-term events happened on my side. But really, what happened to me was that sort of Trump's America started to creep under my skin. It started to. I just started to feel, feel it all around me all the time, and I just I couldn't live like that every day. So I turned off all social media. I didn't watch the news. I just didn't, I just sort of went down my rabbit hole. And originally I thought I would just do that for a couple of weeks. Well, a couple of weeks turned into almost six months, but, uh, and I, again, I, I simply didn't expect it to be that, that extended a thing, but I guess I just needed that much time to recover. And I think in this, in this time of extreme stress in this country, it's really important to know when you hit those walls and when you just have to stop and take a breath and and step back. And I feel like I have done that and I have recharged and I'm in a position to, to um, get through 2020 and the elections without <laughs> um, folding up again. But I did also get help. First of all, um, I sort of I read a lot. I used Audible and I listened to a lot of books. I read a lot of books. And by books, I mean uh, fiction. I just read. I read things that would take me to other worlds and other places and just get me out of my head. And that was really a good place for me to be. I took an actual series of serious vacations. I <laughs> I did something I basically have done very little of in my adult life. I got enough sleep every night. I uh, also improved kind of the health of my existence in a number of ways. I subscribed to Sunbasket, which is one of those, you know, they ship uh, meals basically that you, you uh, cook yourself to your door. And Sunbasket had a large offering of vegetarian and organic options, and that's what I prefer. So um, I ordered through them. They have provided wonderful meals and I've been really happy to have them because they've saved me an enormous amount of uh, planning time and of actual shopping time. And, and if I could say real quick, I want to reiterate, Sunbasket is not a sponsor of this program. That's right. We they are not accepting any money for this. That's right. No, I just had used their product, I think, and it works for me. In my life, it works really well. Another thing that works really well for me is that I stopped taking time to do actual grocery shopping. I uh, go on the um, Kroger website, basically. I plan my uh, my items. I put them all in there. I drive up in my appointment time. They stick my groceries in the back and I drive away. I spend 15 minutes at the grocery store. It's great. 
So things like that made it made it concrete. They made a concrete difference in my uh, sort of mental health because they gave me a lot of time back. Um, I also use the Breathe app on my phone, my wrist, my I, Apple Watch every day, and that's been good for me. I've been using uh, Glow Yoga, another app that I really like. And I bought this little thing called Upright, and you sort of stick it on your back between your shoulders, and it helps you learn, train your body to sit upright more effectively. And that's really made a difference in my back and neck pain. And for somebody who spends a lot of time at a desk all day, I really um, have liked Upright and am happy to be using it. And again, we don't, we're not getting any, this is not a promotional thing for Upright. I just have found them to be really great. So, and then the other thing I did was I really made a, a conscious effort to spend more time with friends and family and and that also takes me out of my head. So all of those things were really good for me and I really healed. Those things all collectively allowed me to do a lot of healing and just quiet my mental space. And then after a while, the world started getting interesting again and I plugged back in. So I kind of planned a soft launch. I really thought about how I wanted to come back into the world and um, I did start with uh, podcasts. So I started listening to things like Stay Tuned with Preet and Lawfare, Rational Security, First Mondays, which is uh, the SCOTUS Blogs podcast. And those things allowed me to start thinking about big issues again without being hit quite so directly in the face with politics. And after I could onboard those and feel confident with that, then I um, started listening to uh podcasts like Irreverent Testimony and Kegro in the Morning and The Professional Left. And I went backwards a number of weeks in those podcasts and, and listened just to get caught up, sort of. And I still am not really listening to the really super hardcore uh, um, big-time political guys. And I will eventually. I'll bring those guys back in. But I've just been kind of being careful uh, about how much I onboard in a day in terms of things that are things that press down on your soul because the latest on what Trump is doing cannot help but crush us all a little bit each day. And I just, I don't want that to happen. So I'm finding ways to uh, be um, both informed and still healthy. The other thing I've been doing, and this just happened this month because it's uh, Women's History Month, is that I'm reading um, four nonfiction books and four fiction books uh, by or about women. And um, man, these women, I'm reading four biographies. These women are so incredibly inspiring. I, I read the book about uh, Churchill's mother, which if you want to understand Winston Churchill, who's one of my heroes, uh, he, understanding his mother better is an is interesting insight into that. And right now I'm almost done with this huge 500 page, new 500 page biography about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And there's no woman more inspiring to me than RBG. She's, she really is a rock star. Uh, next week I'm going to read Broadband about the women who uh, invented the internet. 
And then I'm going to read Becoming. I'm going to read uh, Michelle Obama's biography. And in fiction, I'm reading Mrs. Dalway, To Kill a Mockingbird, Their Eyes Were Watching God, and uh, basically a player yet to be determined. So I'm, I'm being much more conscious about what I take into my life. And I, uh, I really hope to do this in such a way that I can maintain that over the, uh, over the long period, because we have to take this country back. We absolutely must. And we must somehow manage to do it without losing our souls, without burning out. We have to take back the presidency. We have to take back the Senate. Nothing could possibly be more important. And uh, getting to 2020 is going to take all of everything we have. And we have to be able to give all without losing all. So that's what I did. Um, but we are making some changes in the show. And I think Will yeah. is going to talk about that. And just before I get to those, I want to say, you, you say it's all your fault, but I did absolutely nothing to try to bring the show back at all. <laughs> like I was, I was myself pretty burned out and pretty grateful uh, for what was going on. And especially with the uh, election, I was able to work on some local stuff and some get out the vote stuff, which I wouldn't have been able to do, I don't think if I'd been, you know, focusing all of my energy on making sure we had a podcast every week and a uh, an interview every week and doing all these other things that we were doing every week. We were operating like news shows that actually have, you know, a staff and right. an income and things we as Hopping Mad don't have. Uh, so we were doing an incredible amount of work and it was getting unsustainable because we have other things that we that we work on. So uh, that was part of our conversation coming back is how do we make this more sustainable? And one of the things with with apologies to our friends at, at, at Netroots Radio is we're not going to keep trying to, to force our show into a one hour block. Our shows will be as long as they need to be that week based on whether or not we have an interview the time we have to do, the, the level of research we want to do to create content that's the quality we want to create, and our ability to get the show done. There are a lot of other podcasts out there that are irregular in their time block, and that's one of the freedoms that podcasts bring, is the ability for the show to be as long as it needs to be. Might mean 20 minutes, might mean two hours. We will, our, our shows will now be as long as they need to be. Um, and they will happen as often as they need to happen. We're still going to try to do once a week, I think. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, we might have more than one in a week if there's an event we want to talk about. Uh, we might have fewer, depending on the situation. Um, we're not going to try to hold ourselves to the kind of schedule we were holding ourselves to, because that's not sustainable. And uh, we are going to be looking at a couple of other things that we will talk about when we're ready to talk about. Um we have some other ideas about how we can help now that, uh, as Arliss is about to talk about, MMT is everywhere. So there's some things we can do about that and some things that uh, we're excited about trying. So what we're going to do is we are going to keep our podcast at the same quality level. But as far as the timing and the length and the other things that we've been doing, we're going to make some adjustments to make this a lot more sustainable to us so that we don't have a moment where we both hit the wall and then disappear for six months. Because yeah. that's not something we want to do. Um, and and I was talking to, to Arliss earlier about this, and, and it was feeling there were some days where we, we were like, we have to do this. This is our job. And it's not 
something we're getting paid for. We were treating this like we would treat a job. Um, and for us to sustain this, we've got to be able to enjoy it every time we do it. Right. We have to uh, be able to bring the joy. And if we can't do that, then it's really, it's really not worth it to us because this is not an easy thing to do. It's hard to, yeah, and it, to keep a podcast of, uh, of quality going. And it won't be worth it to our listeners either, because if this is becoming a chore and our, you know, we're not enjoying it, then our quality level will drop. There's been some, uh, some times where we've had blocks where the quality could have been increased and our research could have been increased, at least on my side of things. Oh, me too. And, yeah. And, and so I, uh, so we want to make sure that we're maintaining the level of quality that our listeners enjoy as well. And that's, that's part of making this sustainable so that we can guarantee uh, a quality level for, for what we're doing. Um, and so those are our plans going forward. Uh, we won't have an interview every week, but we will be working on getting them when we can get them. And we're going to, we're going to do everything we can to, uh, make sure this keeps going in a sustainable fashion. Um, and we're going to make an adjustments along the way too. So, uh, and we're excited to be back. I'm so excited. We are back. Uh, we think we have a really great show today, uh, coming up. And we, we just, we have a lot on our minds. And uh, one of the things I asked Will to do, you know, for us to kind of give you a little bit of a preview about what we want to talk about in uh, weeks to come. And I think uh, I mentioned a number of those things in my MMT segment, but in terms of general things I want to hit in coming weeks, I want to talk about the WTO schedule of concessions and Brexit, and that's something that Will will talk about in his segment later. Uh, I want to talk about the Irish economy, the backstop and the Good Friday Agreement, trade with China, bunny mills, blockchain, the EU central bank, pollinators, the just the death and destruction going on with pollinators. Obama's library, and that's something Will and I had a whole discussion about, Obama's Mm -hmm. library off air. Uh, Antitrust, and that's getting to be a hot topic, thank goodness, and an update on Puerto Rico. So those are all things I would like to get to over coming weeks and things that really interest me. Yeah, I have a lot to say about what's happening with the United Methodist Church right now, which is an interesting story that hasn't really been told. Um, I want to talk about the progressive movement as a whole, because I'm worried that progressivism and and the word progressive is becoming a meaningless political label. Um, one of the frustrations that people I know from the Occupy movement who are socialists have is that the word socialism has been bandied about so often that a big chunk of Americans think that socialism is when the government does stuff and the word has lost meaning. So I want to talk about the progressive movement as a whole going back to FDR and and where we've come and and not have that, you know, as, as sort of a, a, a cheerleader story for for progressivism, but to talk about some of progressivism's failures and sort of adapting ourselves to a new world when we'd started as kind of a populist movement and to, to look at the development of these ideas, which include, as one of our historic concepts, a second economic bill of rights that includes a job guarantee. And to talk about what progressivism is and where it comes from and this movement that has been a part of the Democratic Party for the better part of a century. Um, I want to talk about social media, the situation with social media. I know we're going to talk about that from the uh, Elizabeth Warren antitrust perspective, but I want to talk about how trolling and and information warfare is is used 
Uh, I'm going to talk about uh, the process of hypernormalization as discussed by Adam Curtis. And I want to talk about some responses to that, like the Hamilton Project. I want to talk about Russian imperialism. I want to talk about yes. sort of how the Russians, uh, Russian Federation is essentially reestablishing the old Russian Empire and the, the way that it's gone after uh, the Baltic states, as the Soviet Union once did, the way it's gone after Ukraine, the way it's gone after Georgia, the way it's putting pressure on, uh, you know, Africa, Persia and Iraq and, and the way it's operating in Iraq, the way the fact that they're they're actually Russian troops in Venezuela right now. Uh, and I, I do want to talk about Venezuela and what's going on there, because uh, while I obviously oppose a U.S. military intervention, uh, mostly because, you know, Interventions there have been disasters for the United States in the past. I definitely don't trust Trump to carry forward any kind of policy that would be successful in the long term for Venezuela. Uh, I, I want to talk about where the reporting has failed on that issue. I don't want to talk about Latin America as a whole. Um, and I want to talk about sort of this Russian oligarch network that exists where Russia has become uh, – it, it, most countries have an intelligence agency, but Russia has become an intelligence agency with a country. And I want to talk about the, the Russian opposition to that. I want to talk about uh, the way our media works. I want to talk about new media. I want to talk about how new media is failing and what it can do about it. And I want to talk about how the left can react to the information warfare we face. Because I think there's a way for us to deal with the trolls and the bots that's going to involve a lot less screaming at each other during primary campaigns. Uh, so we so, have a lot on our plate and a lot <laughs> yeah. we want to talk about. We have a lot to say. And next up on Hopping Mad, I start exactly with that, responding and um, capitalizing sort of on the, wow, MMT is everywhere uh, movement, I guess, uh, here on Hopping Mad. Back on Hopping Mad, and all of the sudden, modern monetary theory is everywhere. MMT, as we call it, is on the national news. It's on Bloomberg. It's in the New York Times. It's on the Wall Street Journal. Suddenly, people are talking about modern monetary theory all the time. And this is great. I mean, it's really great, but it's also a little bit funny because people talk about modern monetary theory as if it's just this brand new thing that just sprung up yesterday. And I feel a little bad for these MMT economists who have been working so hard in this field and so diligently and writing and publishing amazing papers for 30 years that explain the economy and predict things in the economy that mainstream economists have completely missed. So... It is a new phenomenon that all of a sudden mainstream economists feel compelled to comment and then pretty much lie about modern monetary theory. 
leading off this pack would be Larry Summers, who's never met a major economic crisis he could not see until after it had crashed down upon the economy. He's talking absolute nonsense about MMT, and he's using this nonsense to deflect you from the fact that MMT economists correctly predicted the economic crisis he missed well in advance. So, you know, I feel like with all these guys, I feel like it's consider the source. Remember how wrong these guys have been in the past. Um, there's really the very top of that list is Kenneth Excel spreadsheet Rogoff. Uh, this is one of the guys, one of the people who was involved in the um, Reinhardt Rog Rogoff uh, theory that was completely misproven when all of his data was proven to be corrupted by the fact that he misentered one of the formulas. He didn't use part of the data properly in the spreadsheet. He reversed some numbers. I mean, so in my notes, it actually says Kenneth Excel Rogoff, but you get my meaning. This is somebody who his major theory in economics, his major contribution to the field of economics has been proven to be wrong. So he, this man who predicted the, you know, death and destruction caused by a debt cliff, which, you know, completely disproven, um, is claiming that MMT is folly while purposefully mischaracterizing MMT to disprove a point MMT never claims to prove in the first place. Fed Chairman Jerome Powell says he's not read up on the theory, but he then goes on to explain why the theory he doesn't know anything about is wrong. Paul Krugman, well, okay. So Stephanie Kelton is right in her Bloomberg opinion piece, and it's called uh, Modern Monetary Theory is Not a Recipe for Doom. And I'll put a link to that on our website, the website being uh, imhoppingmad.com. But Kelton says Krugman's basic misunderstanding is important because he has this regular column in the New York Times, and he has all the heft that that implies. Like David Brooks, Krugman must know, this guy just has to know where the Times has the publisher of the Times has buried the bodies of his enemies because to be so wrong for so long about so many things and still be published, you just have to have dirt on the publisher, right? But Krugman is still there, so it's and it's important that he's still there because so many people um, value his opinion because he's in the New York Times. Also, you know, having a Nobel Prize, that's not a small thing. So... Krugman explains his beliefs well. He is conversational, he's interesting, he's funny, and that's powerful too. So really, of all these people, Krugman is the most dangerous, even though he's considered um, much more on the progressive side of the spectrum. He's really the most dangerous of this whole crew, I think. And uh, do read uh, Kelton's response to him, because it's really, really well done. So what's changed? Why is MMT suddenly everywhere? Well, you know what? It's critical mass, finally. It's AOC and how she plans to pay for the Green New Deal. It's uh, social media. It's podcasts like this one. It's textbooks that are out there and now available. It's all of this is resting on the shoulders of nearly three decades of outstanding economic research by MMT scholars. And now major financial publications and media organizations feel compelled to cover MMT and have a 
a view. Sadly, they don't seem to be there, do their research before they make a pronouncement, but m nonetheless, they finally feel compelled to say something about it in a real way. And this brings me back to that um, quote that is uh, considered one of the 10 most famous things Gandhi never said, uh, but it is, the quote is, First they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. Um, so anyway, uh, but I really do think that's true. I think that um, they have been through the the ignoring stage and they've even been through the laughing stage where they just blew us off. Uh, they kind of laughed and, and shoved us aside and now they actually feel like they have to respond. So now they're actually engaging us. They're actually fighting with us. And that is really, really awesome. We're in stage three. Next, we win. Well, and, we have a lot of work to do before we well, get there, but yeah. But yeah. It's, we've already done a lot of work. I mean, this is 30 years of work to get us to yeah. now, right? So this is not a small thing. And uh, uh, I think it's important to acknowledge that. So what are the mainstreamers getting wrong? First of all, it's what they hear. They hear, when we speak, they hear infinite spending. Somehow they always hear what MMT has to say about a fiscal sovereign creating new money to spend into the economy and that um, the limitation on that spending in a healthy economy is not about the amount of money being spent. That's what they hear. Um, what they always and apparently willfully fail to hear is that we also always, always, always talk about constraints. When we talk about spending, we always talk about constraints. They're convinced we never talk about constraints. They tell us we are changing our story when we tell them we always talk about constraints. And they say, oh, well, now you're bringing up constraints. No, we've been talking about constraints from the very beginning. The constraints on MMT are integral to the basic theory of modern monetary theory. It's just that we don't think the constraints are, are digits glowing on a screen at the Fed. We think the constraints are the real constraints in an economy, goods and services that which is real. And so that's what we're paying attention to. We're paying attention to the real economy, real constraints. And um, how, well, I was going to say how they can't hear that is beyond me, but it isn't beyond me. Their jobs depend on them not hearing that. Increasing taxation is another thing that they hear. They hear infinite spending and they hear increasing taxation. They hear us talk about the various tools to cool an economy, but they only hear one. Only one of those things um, rings with them. If an economy gets too hot, it can be cooled by increasing taxation. Well, that's, you know, that's basic. That's not MMT. That's, you know, that's basic bottom line macroeconomics. That's nothing we ever invented, but it's not, so it's not facially incorrect, but it's politically too, too difficult a needle to thread and it's much, much too slow acting. Not only is the lead time on a change in tax policy too slow to provide meaningful economic relief from spiking inflation, the politics around it would make it too difficult, right? Because <laughs> passing tax increases is difficult. So it also isn't the way MMT wants to use taxation. We want to use taxation to drive a more equitable society by taxing the wealthiest members of society in order to limit their political power and their societal clout. We don't need them to pay for anything. Pay for is not the reason to tax. The reason to tax is for equity.
That's what we're looking for in taxation. The other big thing that these guys get wrong is misattribution. It's the funniest and least effective, but somehow it's one of those things that just really sticks in their craw. And the manner in which mainstreamers strike out is when they say that MMT is just, and here I want you to, in your mind, fill in the name of any old dead economist, uh, and nothing more. And they're, in other words, they're saying, it's just Keynes and nothing more, or it's just Abba Lerner and nothing more, except that it isn't. And I'll put a link in our blog to Dr. Randall Ray's recent post in New Economic Perspectives, in which he addresses this really, really well by delineating exactly um, from which soil the roots of MMT spring. But these sources include Knapp, Ennis, Keynes, Schumpeter, Goodhart, Marx, um, Velblin, Minsky, and Goodley. The thing, the thing which is so pernicious about this train of thought is the idea that we should all be inventing a wheel from scratch. We all build on what's gone before, right? So, of course, MMT has roots in other theories. We, no economic theory is just invented from scratch like it fell from the sky. We build on the, on the shoulders of those, you know, of these foundations. So, here's the thing to remember when anyone tweets about fill in the name of old dead economist, when you're in a discussion with them about MMT, which is that MMT is actually effectively explaining and predicting the world today. Old dead economist did not, and neither has any mainstream economist. And if they have questions about that, just refer them back to the global financial crisis. The other funny form of misattribution is when they, is when, you know, fill in the name of any mainstream economist here, claims that he, and it's always a he, has always believed this and fill in any tiny sliver of MMT thought. So they'll say, I've always believed that. And, you know, basically, so there, this is always accompanied by the written version of a three-year-old girl stomping her foot and glaring. I have to admit, I love these moments because MMT Twitter has so much fun with them. One of these guys claims to have always thought that, and the race is on to find the many, 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 many times this guy has said just the opposite. We should turn it into a game show and give out prizes. Well, there's an idea, right? <laughs> um, the other thing that, that these guys get really wrong is the discussion of zero bound and interest rates. And I'm going to talk about that in some detail on a, um, on a coming show. But this is something that Stephanie Kelton gets into with Krugman. And if you read the Kelton link on our uh, blog for this show on our website, I'm hoppingmad.com, you'll get more information on that. So we've, I've just talked about what these guys hear, right? And now I'm going to talk to, to you about what they ignore. They ignore first and foremost, the job guarantee. When, when we, JG, let me start at the beginning, job guarantee, JG, has been deeply ingrained in MMT since the beginning. It's gone by a few names. Uh, so sometimes it's called employer of last resort. Sometimes it's called buffer stock employment. Sometimes it's called public service employment, but it's all JG. It's all job guarantee. And it's been with us since the beginning. And it's JG that provides the automatic stabilization to an economy. JG is the big tool, not taxation. JG is the big tool, and we have always said so. 
it's clear to me that I need to talk about this more in the future, so I won't go into more detail here, but I'm going to come back to job guarantee. I know I've talked about it uh, in the past, but there's a lot more to say, and there's a lot more happening in JG. Banking. So these guys, for some reason, mainstream economists continue to claim that we pay no attention to banking. And that's just crazy. And it's crazy for two reasons. First, it's that their theories fail to mention banking basically at all. And second, we have mountains of papers published on banking and the way banks work and uh, as part of the private sector. And um, that, again, has been part of, of MMT way, 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 way back to the very beginning. There's about to be a new textbook, a new MMT-based textbook that has to do with money and banking. It's going to be very, very good. Um, but um, just to refresh, refresh you with what's going on with banking and MMT, I'm going to, again, get back to that in a, in a very short-term, near-future show in some detail. These guys talk about balance. And... What they miss, they hear the word balance differently than we in MMT hear the word balance. When they hear the word balance, they're talking about balancing the budget or they're talking about the debt as being out of, you know, as being too high. They hit MMT over the head over and over and over again because those numbers aren't particularly important to us. Well, debt does matter. And again, that's going to be a topic I come back to. Debt does matter but not in the way they think it does and not in the way most people think it does. We aren't interested in balancing numbers. We're interested in balancing the health of the economy. We're looking at different things than mainstream economists are. And so are millennials. And that, folks, is what's really scaring the mainstreamers. It's all of you millennials out there talking about modern monetary theory. <laughs> um <laughs> And Millennials the, are ruining neoliberalism. <laughs> um, and the last thing is textbooks. For some bizarro reason, these guys think we don't have textbooks. Like somehow all these professors have managed to teach all these courses on MMT without a textbook for all this time. So, of course, we have them, and we've had, had them for a long time. But there's been a new text just released. In fact, it's, um, it's still in pre-order on Amazon, where I have clicked order. Um, and uh, this is going to be the textbooks that's going to make all the mainstreamers want to cry. Nothing works better than an economic theory that's already been proven to work in the real world. <laughs> the new text is Macroeconomics by William Mitchell, L. Randall Ray, and Martin Watts. I, uh, you can pre-order it now. I did too. I suggest that you do. It's really, really wonderful. And um, that's what's happening in MMT. We'll talk about it a lot more in the next show and the next show and the one after that. Will? Coming up on Hopping Mad, I will be talking about Brexit and some of what happened this week. Though not all of it, because uh, it's a mess. Anyway, that's coming up right here on, on Hopping Mad.
Hi, everyone. Because of some logistical issues and an illness on my part, the final cut of this episode was delayed. In that time, there have been even more developments in the Brexit process. For the sake of timeliness, I wanted to append an update to this piece recorded today, Monday the 18th of March, which includes audio from the House of Commons and an explanation of what might come next. This will run immediately after our regular segment recorded last week, which begins now. Welcome back to Hopping Mad. So the way I've been introducing discussions about Brexit is to say that Brexit is dumber than what is otherwise being reported. There is (laughs) sort of this conception in online spaces, in certain uh, media, and even it seems in the UK Parliament that the withdrawal agreement is a Brexit deal. And it is not. What the withdrawal agreement actually is, is a transitional arrangement which will set up Britain's status while it negotiates a final treaty that sets its relationship with the European Union. This is not a deal on Brexit. This is a deal setting up the transitional agreement. And the reason that I have to be that specific about this and the reason I think that there's confusion in Parliament about it is because Michel Barnier was watching the debate and had to announce, hey, UK Parliament, if uh, if you don't vote for a withdrawal agreement, you don't get a, a transitional process. What the withdrawal agreement is, is the deal on the transitional process. So. If, and we know at, at we, we were recording this just after the latest attempt to pass the withdrawal agreement failed, becoming the second biggest defeat for a sitting prime minister since universal suffrage and the fourth biggest defeat for a UK prime minister in all of history. Uh, the first one, of course, being the last time they tried to po- pass this deal. <laughs> and what was the vote count, the final vote count? Uh, let me pull it up real quick. I, I think it, it was, hang on. Oh, it's uh, it, uh, 242 to 391. Yep. Uh, and the last one lost by a majority of 230. This one lost by a majority of, of 149. So this so, is when we need like an explosion sound effect right here. Yeah. Yeah. If we, if we, if we did that, we'd have some kind of Jim Cramer noise. Yeah where I'd slap a button and and then say <laughs> yeah. something dumb about economics. But the, the situation here is that if this were to magically pass, if they were somehow to magically get this transitional arrangement through, they would still spend several years fighting about what Brexit would ultimately look like. Because they then have to write the final Brexit treaty. They'd be out of the European Union. There'd be a transitional process underway. There'd be some kind of market access, etc., etc. And then they'd be working out the final treaty, which would be another long and contentious process. So even passing this deal would not make the Brexit debate go away. And we'd still be hearing about Brexit for several years. And there'd still be big fights in Parliament because all this is is the deal on the transitional 
withdrawal agreement, not the final treaty. And they can't even get that far. They can't even get get so far as to have a transitional deal. And that really has not been reported either in the UK or outside of the UK. A lot of a lot of the reporters are missing the fact that this isn't the deal. Because people keep calling this a Brexit deal and it's not a deal on Brexit. It's it's a transitional arrangement. So just for what's happening right now, uh, today, when we're recording this, it is Tuesday, uh, March 12th on Tomorrow, March 13th, the Wednesday, they're going to have a vote on whether or not they will accept uh, a no-deal Brexit, whether Parliament will accept a no-deal Brexit. And I do expect that that vote uh, will go against having a no-deal Brexit. Uh, something interesting and, about the language is And that it's the- worth saying that that's going to happen because no one in their right mind wants a no-deal Brexit, which is why, of course, there are people in Parliament who want it, but uh, because they're not in their right mind. But no one who's paid any attention to what a no-deal Brexit would mean wants a no-deal Brexit. So here's, here's, and here's the thing, here's the problem. Uh, If they ask for an extension, the EU 27 has to unanimously agree on an extension. And they have to give a good reason for wanting the extension. And they have to, you know, say they'll find some process. There's another announcement from EU officials, according to uh, uh, BuzzFeed's Europe editor, editor, Alberto Nardelli. He's saying that uh, the EU is, is saying there will be no further talks on Brexit. So their options are to leave without a deal on March 29th to apply for an extension that gives the EU enough reason to support it, uh, which, you know, would require EU's agreement or to revoke Article 50. That's that's the three options to stop Brexit. Um, and even a lot of the people who are in the Labour Party don't seem to really be understanding that, you know, they're dealing with a nascent superpower that is the European Union. They're not some big, powerful country that gets to talk about the timetable. This doesn't happen on the UK's schedule. This happens on the EU's schedule. Because the EU, when it acts as a single entity, is a superpower on par with the United States as far as diplomatic and economic power is concerned. And even in the labor benches, they don't quite seem to understand that a lot of this stuff isn't exactly up to them. But that's... And that's the mess they're in right now, that they might vote for an Article 50 extension, although there was a, there was a um, tweet from Faisal Islam, who is a reporter for Sky News. And what he's saying is that the government is being advised not to bring an Article 50 extension to a vote in Parliament. According to uh, Islam, uh, he, he's saying that the reasoning is that they're afraid that Parliament might try to amend it. And uh, that's an interesting point that that he reported, because if there's an amendment to a request for a a withdrawal agreement extension, um, an Article 50 extension, uh, if there's an amendment to that, it could contain something that the EU either can't or won't agree to. And it might trigger this lengthy process that would cause 
the UK to crash out of the EU while asking for an extension. And that's what the FT has been referring to as an accidental Brexit. Although I, I don't like that name because this isn't accidental. Right. Uh, and, and I think the best way to look at this when, when people are talking about accidental Brexit is to look at some of the people behind uh, Brexit. Some of our listeners may be familiar with Jacob Rees-Mogg, the uh, leader of the European Research Group, which is the ultra-high Tory anti-Europe organization within the, the Conservative Party. Um, Jacob, Re- Jacob Rees-Mogg's father, William Rees-Mogg, wrote a book called The Sovereign Individual, which is all about disaster capitalism. It's like one of the, the, the how-to manuals for disaster capitalism. It was written in 1997, and disaster capitalists like Mitt Romney and a whole bunch of others have used a lot of the techniques described in this to use disasters to make a lot of money. This is, this is the kind of people that are pushing for a hard Brexit. If it happens, it won't be accidental because people like Jacob Rees-Mogg and his family and people who are from this ultra-libertarian, uh, far-right sort of group want it to happen because they think they can make money selling off the NHS to American interests or making money off of human suffering and disasters. It won't be an accident. It will be as intended by people like uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg. Um, and to just draw like sort of a comparison between them, they're a lot like the Paul Ryans and the Rand Pauls in the United States. Um, what they say about the government is that they they they're very anti MMT. They want they say that the government and that well the welfare state as they call it is unfinanceable, uh, which is a British version of wanting to make a, a government small enough to draw, drown in the bathtub, which is one of our major libertarian talking points. So this is the same group over there that we have over here doing exactly the same horrible things to hurt people and make money off of it. Well, it's basically extreme ne- neoliberal economics. Yep, that's exactly what it is. And that's that's who's behind Brexit and trying to force this sort of accidental Brexit, which could be caused if Theresa May takes a misstep or if Parliament sends a, a withdrawal extension agreement out that the EU for various reasons, is not able to agree to either because it crosses an EU line or because they don't have time to vote on it to agree to it. Uh, remember that, that we're talking about the 29th of March, which is days away. We are, we are down to, you know, days away from, from the EU and UK splitting with no deal. And... And that's another thing is, is I, I, I get that labor wants to call for a general election. And I, and, I, and I do think that in normal political times, that's an appropriate thing to do. But if they were to hold an immediate general election now, uh, Brexit would occur while they're out voting and having their general election. Because it takes about a month to organize a general election. That's how long it usually takes. Same thing for uh, a second referendum on uh, revoking Brexit. And just to hop in here for a second, this doesn't just affect the British or the EU. 
my company, in, in my company, we are in this limbo land and have been for months because we don't know if we need to re-up our dealer, our um, contract with our EU dealer to cover all of the all of uh, the current EU, or if we need to have an EU dealer and a, a British dealer, we think the latter is the case. But nobody's willing to sign a contract until everybody knows what's going on. So even tiny, tiny little companies like mine in little narrow industries are all everybody's holding their breath. This affects you know, basically trade worldwide. Yeah. And, you know, Arliss, you're not shipping oil or medicine or really vital goods. And it's still affecting your, your business. One of the, one of the aspects about this that's, that's really dangerous that hasn't been discussed and that we're going to do a little bit more research on, um, is if the UK uh, crashes out of the EU without a deal uh, at the end of the month, which it is currently set to do, barring some change in direction this week, uh, it will crash onto World Trade Organization terms. There's a bit of a problem there, though, because every time the WTO gets together with another round of, of, of talks that lead to a new GATT agreement, which is the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. Uh, everybody gets together and, and sets out where their economy currently is and gets an independent schedule of concessions set up and gets uh, agricultural concessions set up and has this whole list of when the tariffs will kick in. Because often there's a quota for how much you're allowed to import or export of a certain good from a certain place or to a certain place. And when you go over the quota, that's when punitive tariffs kick in. And these tariffs can be as high as 300% on some goods and services. And let's be clear, the, the parsing of these quotas are down to things like hard cheese versus soft cheese. Yeah. You know, so these aren't like big, wide, like automobiles. These things come down to like every classification of automobile, every kind of, you know, dairy product, every kind of grain. It is, these are extraordinarily detailed and they take years to negotiate. The UK. The 29th of March is days away. Yeah. Here's, here's something that really made me, um, sit up and kind of choke it has a week ago more than a week ago was already the deadline for goods that are either shipping to china or from china to get to the uk so if a company is shipping from china to uh to the uk as part of their um you know vendor supply chain they made that shipment not knowing what the tariff would be when that ship docks in the UK. So they had to make provision for that. So a lot of big companies have de- decided that instead of risking the, the, the tariff, that they would fly goods in and as much they would backload their inventories as much as they could afford to do and literally fly goods, which is much more um, expensive, rather than than risk the shipping tariff. So this is already happening. Yeah, 
And, and here's the thing. Because of the lack of the independent schedule of concessions with the, at, at the um, WTO, well, first off, the reason the UK doesn't have one of those is because last time the EU was the one that applied for the independent schedule of concessions that covered the entire EU. That was the last gap round. Was it, the UK was part of the EU and the EU sent negotiators in for everyone. So the UK tried to reapply for an independent schedule of concessions this time around, and a bunch of countries, including the United States, objected because we smell blood in the water. <laughs> right. This isn't about, you know, the US actually fearing that we'll be hurt by the UK continuing to trade on the grounds that it traded on under, you know, while it was part of the European Union. This is about the fact that we can smell blood in the water and we want to extract painful trade concessions from the UK. We want to force them to open markets to goods from the US that don't meet current UK health and safety standards, like chlorinated chicken. We want to, uh, a lot of people in the US want to buy out the NHS. So we want goods and services agreements with the UK that essentially would let the United States buy the place out. That is what a lot of the, the, the US chambers of commerce are hoping will come from that. So we're, we're objecting to them having a fast-tracked uh, deal at the WTO, which means that uh, since they don't have that independent schedule of concessions, everything they trade will be traded under the most punitive sanctions and the most punitive uh, tariffs allowed for by the WTO. Things that you would normally never have to deal with. And this applies to oil and food and medicine and all sorts of other things. And the result is if you're selling natural gas and you're in Dubai and you have to ship that natural gas on these giant tankers, I don't know that you're going to be interested in, in sending things to the UK markets when there are other markets you could send to if you don't know that you're going to make the profit you expect to make. Because you don't know what to charge for your natural gas when it gets to the port. And the exactly. folks in Dubai are known for being humanitarian, so I'm sure they're just going to, you know, yeah. be nice to the UK and send the gas <laughs> anyway. Because I haven't heard anything about, you know, humanitarian problems coming out of that part of the world ever. Like, it, this is... So this is already a total disaster that, that people really haven't been talking about, is the WTO status stuff where there isn't an agreement. Uh, the only UK reporting I've been able to find out, uh, uh, on this is either at, by the Financial Times, which is a financial paper, paper, and it was talked about a little bit uh, by LBC Radio, which is a political talk radio. And that's, that's the only British reporting I can find on this. So I'm not even sure that MPs are aware of what is about to happen if they crash out of the EU. I'm fairly certain the British public isn't aware of what's going to happen if they crash out of the EU when it comes to those WTO terms. So we, we don't really know what the economic effect is of, the, of it is going to be. And, and Arliss, I was talking to you about this earlier. Like, 
how how would we even try to understand what's going to happen to the UK economically in these circumstances? There's what staggers me is when I listen to the Guardian, the FT, uh, you know, their the podcasts that are coming out of the UK, and they get all of their high end. Uh, financial analysts on and these guys are just saying uh we don't know yeah you know i mean that really the if the if 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 the uk crashes out of brexit whether it is quote unquote by accident or on purpose either way um nobody knows what happens for instance at air traffic control nobody knows what happens with um the rights of foreign airlines to land in the UK and vice versa. Doctors can't, doctors who are certified in other EU countries are suddenly not certified in the UK if, and if they're practicing there. It is, uh, medicine isn't approved into the UK. The It is absolutely extensive and the EU has been providing all of these um uh, small farmers and that kind of thing up in the Midlands with subsidies. And those, of course, all vanish. But And so uh, the May government has said, oh, well, okay, then we'll provide subsidies. And those subsidies are 10% or less of what the EU was providing. Mm-hmm. So all these folks in the Midlands who voted for leave are now realizing that, uh-oh, this is actually going to cost me money. Yeah, uh, and one of the one of the aspects about this though is that this is so. What's going on? What caused the Brexit vote was English nationalism, uh, often called British nationalism. But this is this is English nationalism. Um, the UK used to have an empire, and a lot of these folks are very angry that they don't anymore, and they want to be a big important country like the United States. They want the empire back, or at least to be treated like they have an empire still. They want to feel like they're this giant, powerful country, and they're just not anymore. And what happened, and what I, what people have been uh, reporting on, um, with everything I've been listening to, is there's a lot of people saying, "I know I will be poorer off, but I'm okay with that because it'll be better because we'll have be able to be Britain again," or some other nationalistic nonsense. And you keep hearing that from Brexiteers. So even people who are going to be economically harmed by this, who are going to lose their jobs, are coming at this from this perspective of, of emotive nationalistic energy where, where it's, I don't care that I'm going to be worse off. I want this to happen anyway because I want some vague sense of independence. And, and what's ridiculous about that is that all these things that the United Kingdom is negotiating their way out of were things the UK insisted on and helped build. They right. were worried about... Um, when they were going into the European community, uh, some of the countries they were negotiating with had been bombed back to the Stone Age by the Second World War and were still in the process of setting manufacturing back up. So they insisted on there being manufacturing standards for medicine and all these other things. The Brits were the ones who insisted on a lot of these rules. They've had a, a, a massive influence on the way that the EU works and that has been portrayed to the British people as unelected Brussels bureaucrats. Right. And to a certain extent they were, but they were all British bureaucrats carrying out the will of the British people as the Brits wanted because they didn't want their medicine. uh, They didn't want to get flooded by cheap German medicine at the time. 
or by faulty German equipment or by faulty French equipment or by French uh, agricultural shipments that were infected with some kind of, you know, bacteria that would make people sick. These were all set up by the UK. And according to UK rules, for the sake of the UK, they are exempt from so many things involving the EU, including ever having to join the euro. And that has been portrayed to the British people as a European thing imposed on the UK when actually it's the UK that has imposed all this stuff on the rest of Europe. Yes, that's right. On UK terms. And so these people are about to get very badly hurt by this decision that they made. And even now I'm, I'm looking at the UK parliament and I don't think a lot of these MPs actually understand the situation. Because a lot of them are talking and we're talking in the debate today as if there could be a transitional agreement without a withdrawal agreement. But the withdrawal agreement is the transitional agreement. And even Labour is talking as if there's time to renegotiate. Like Labour wants to bring forward some other Brexit deal. Right. Labour can't do that because they there isn't another deal to be had. And, you know... The SNP, to to a degree, is talking about, you know, extending Article 50 and holding a second referendum. And I hope that that I mean, that's the most sensible thing here is to extend Article 50. But it's got to happen in a way that that would allow the the EU some hope that there would be a resolution and uh, extending Article 50 to allow time for the British people to either validate this Brexit transitional arrangement or to reject it would be a way forward. So the SNP are the only people in parliament with a sensible plan on the way forward here, which is kind of sad because there's only 35 of them. They are the third largest party uh, by seats in parliament. And when that is the voice of reason is a pro-independence party from Scotland. I mean, they're the ones with the only sensible plan forward here which is to ask for an extension so you can hold a referendum. So you have the time to hold the referendum. That's... And the uh, Brussels has... um... (laughs) Oh, Sebastian Payne. So (laughs) I don't know if... So so some of our listeners probably are aware that uh, at Stitcher and other places, you can get the Financial Times political... Uh, FT Politics podcast, which is run by a guy named Sebastian Payne, who I, uh, for a while, thought had a speech impediment. But what he actually has is what's considered a, a very, very posh British accent, where you turn any R in the middle of a word into a W. So, so he's always talking about the events in Brussels or what's going on with the Irish backstop. Yes. And um, it's... Again, I thought he had a speech impediment at at first, so I was thinking he was very, very brave. But uh, (laughs) it turns out, (laughs) nope that's just that's just his incredibly posh accent. Um, and uh, yeah, and I kind of feel bad for the FT politics guys. I feel bad for Sebastian Payne because they've spent every single weekend trying to figure out the most interesting way to report on the process and say nothing has changed since we last reported on what's going on with Brexit. It's still the same scenario 
you know, one of the one of the moments that I was uh, I remember uh, is when the when Labor Party actually splintered a little bit. There's a breakaway group from Labor called uh, um, the Independent Group, and it's been joined by some Tories too. Um, when they split away, a BBC camera overheard one of the journalists in the room say, <laughs> "I'm not going to lie, we are fucked." Yeah. That went out live, live. broadcasted <laughs> by the BBC. <laughs> and I feel like that is the most honest reporting the BBC has done on the entire Brexit situation because they have even they haven't brought up before the situation with 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 the Irish backstop was well known. Like Arliss, I think you were the first person to bring that up on the show. We've reported on that on the show. Uh Others outside of the UK have reported on that. I think the only time, and this is according to one of my contacts who kind of studies the BBC, the only time it appears to have been brought up by the BBC was an audience question at Question Time, which is a political show where you line up a bunch of politicians and people. Yeah, I think that according to one of my uh, UK contacts who studies the BBC, Ireland wasn't even part of the conversation. The Guardian brought it up. There were some opinion articles from The Guardian. There was reporting from various newspapers. But the BBC, according to people I've talked to, did not discuss it. And for longtime listeners, you know, we talked about that just over and over and over again because it was very clear to us that this was going to come right up against the Good Friday Agreement, which is exactly what's happened. So the it is... Um, it is in in some ways it is insoluble. So I do, yeah. I do think that um, that the, that the way out is a referendum, and how they yeah. get the time to do that is going to be a trick. Yeah, they'll need to have some kind of uh, Article Fifty extension. Right. That will have to happen. And again, here's the thing: depending on how that happens, we don't know if if the request for an article 50 extension would be something that uh, the EU negotiators have the capacity to just agree to. If it happens the wrong way, it might have to involve a European commission vote, which takes potentially more time than the UK has right now. Great. So that's a potential situation. Um, so and then it would require the UK to change legislation that said that they will not leave on the 29th. And there's there's a bunch of other steps that would have to have to happen. So it's not even clear that they have the competence to pull off an Article, Article 50 extension. And one of the things I'll point out, there's, there's one point I haven't made. When Theresa May decided to hold a general election and lost her majority, that's what caused all the problems for her. She listened to Ruth Davidson in Scotland, who said that, you know, the winds had moved in the Tory party's direction. The Scottish Tories had been able to rally the unionist side of the debate in Scotland and get support from the unionist movement. And thus, uh, uniting the unionists and loyalists were able to take I think, um, 10 or 15 seats off the SNP. I don't know the exact number right this second because I'm not looking at it, but they were able to win that election, but they lost it in the rest of the country. That brought in the DUP. What the Tories would normally be doing and what they intended and the to do DUP about... the DUP 
the DUP is the Democratic Unionist Party. That is the um, the Orangemen in Northern yep. Ireland. That's the the, uh, the the Protestant side of that whole war. Yeah, that's that's the radical Unionist Party from Northern Ireland. What the Tories intended to do about Ireland was throw Northern Ireland under the bus. That was their entire plan all along. That's why they didn't discuss it, because they don't care about Northern Ireland, which will not come as a shock to anyone who lives in Northern Ireland. The situation there was never supposed to be important, but it suddenly is because now Theresa May has to rely on the DUP for votes. So she can't do what what the Tories intended to do all along, which is to throw Northern Ireland under the bus. Normally, they wouldn't care about putting a border down the Irish Sea. The only reason they have to care is because of the DUP. Right. All of which, every single iota of which was incredibly predictable. And if a, if a rabbit American sitting in the middle the- of Indiana can figure it out, I cannot figure out why the, why the BBC could not figure it out. It's staggering to me. Yeah. And I think I think there, there was uh, this all goes back to Tony Blair, unfortunately, where during the, the push for the Iraq war, he got into a big fight with the people running the BBC who yep. resigned. And thus the BBC stopped its process of reform where it was going to try to stop being state media and become actual public media. And that process hasn't really been completed yet. Um, they they got rid of the old BBC Trust organization recently and replaced it with the Office of Communications, which is still run by a member of the House of Lords. Maybe that'll lead to some reforms at the BBC that will turn it into a better news organization. But nothing that helps with this problem. Nope. So the, the net of this is that there are two more votes this week that will matter enormously. And nobody knows yeah. where where this goes. So stay tuned, but folks. <laughs> here's, here's the one predi- prediction that I can give you and tell you is absolutely going to happen. If through some miracle or black magic, Theresa May is able to get her withdrawal agreement through, it gets passed, there's an orderly process that begins on the 29th. If something happens that gets that deal through, Nothing will change, and we will spend the next two years continuing to hear about the process of negotiation with the EU because it's not the final deal. It's just a transitional arrangement, and there's going to be more fights in Parliament. There will be something that has to happen with the final treaty that will have to come back to Parliament so Parliament can still mess up the entire process. Even if she gets her withdrawal agreement through, this doesn't end. This will continue for years still, even if Theresa May wins. And so, on, <laughs> on that, on that cheery note. note, everybody, thank you so, so much for joining us today. It, it really, we're so glad to be back and we're so glad to have you with us. Our show's editor, Michelle LeSure, has made it possible for us to stick with Hopping Mad. And we really thank her for all her diligent efforts on our behalf. The Hopping Mad podcast is available on Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, Radio Public, and Spotify. Our website is imhoppingmad.com, and you can listen to, download, or comment on the show there. We really, really do love to hear from you. 
Um, we also have kind of consuming day jobs. So please understand uh, that that may get in the way of a speedy response, but we'll get back to you as soon as we can. Uh, for fast, if short comment, you can find us on Twitter at I'm Hopping Mad. Will is on Twitter at WillMcLeod99. And I'm there as obviously Arliss Bunny. Hopping Mad is your place for deep dive down the rabbit hole coverage of politics, economics, and of course, carrots. Until next week. Cheers. Welcome back. Since the original recording, there have been two dramatic events in the House of Commons, one of which was a minor procedural drama where a change in language which saw Parliament refusing to recognize that no-deal Brexit was the legal default forced Theresa May to vote against a bill she'd proposed herself to deal with the topic. But this was overshadowed today. Speaker John Burko has used his power as the chair to warn Theresa May's government that it will be blocked from bringing forward a third vote on her Brexit deal without substantial changes to it due to long-standing rules of Parliament, referring to the authoritative work on those rules known as Erskine May. Burko's statement to Parliament is succinct, rich in detail, and so, rather than spending more time attempting to describe the situation than he did in making the original statement in the first place, I'll let him speak for himself, and then I'll explain afterwards what might come next. Thank you. Order. I wish to make a statement to the House. There has been much speculation over the past week about the possibility of the government bringing before the House a motion on Brexit for another so-called meaningful vote under the statutory framework provided in the EU Withdrawal Act 2018. On the 13th of March, however, the Right Honourable Lady, the member for Wallasey, asked on a point of order at column 394 whether it would be proper for the government to keep bringing the same deal back to the House ad infinitum. I replied that no ruling was necessary at that stage, but that one might be required at some point in the future. Subsequently, members on both sides of the House, and indeed on both sides of the Brexit argument, have expressed their concerns to me about the House being repeatedly asked to pronounce on the same fundamental proposition. The 24th edition of Erskine May states on page 397 that, and I quote, a motion or an amendment which is the same in substance as a question which has been decided during a session may not be brought forward again during that same session. It goes on to state that, and I quote, attempts have been made to evade this rule by raising again with verbal alterations the essential portions of motions which have been negatived. Whether the second motion is substantially the same as the first is finally a matter for the judgment of the chair. This convention is very strong and of long standing, dating back to the 2nd of April, 1604. Yeah. Last Thursday, 
The Honourable Gentleman, the Member for Rhonda, quoted examples of occasions when the ruling had been reasserted by four different speakers of this House, notably in 1864, 1870, 1882, 1891 and 1912. Each time the Speaker of the day ruled that a motion could not be brought back because it had already been decided in that same session of Parliament. Indeed, Erskine May makes reference to no fewer than 12 such rulings up to the year 1920. One of the reasons why the rule has lasted so long is that it is a necessary rule to ensure the sensible use of the House's time and the proper respect for the decisions which it takes. Decisions of the House matter. They have weight. In many cases, they have direct effects, not only here, but on the lives of our constituents. Absence of Speaker intervention since 1920 is attributable not to the discontinuation of the Convention, but to general compliance with it. Thus, as Erskine May notes, the Public Bill Office has often disallowed bills on the ground that a bill with the same or very similar long title cannot be presented again in the same session. So far as our present situation is concerned, let me summarise the chronology of events. The draft EU withdrawal agreement, giving effect to the deal between the Government and the EU, was published on the 14th of November, and the agreement itself, together with the accompanying political declaration on the future relationship, received endorsement from the European Council on the 25th of November. The first scheduled vote on what I will hereafter refer to as the deal was due to take place on the 11th of December. However, on the 10th of December, the vote was postponed after 164 speeches had already been made over three of the five days allotted for the debate. That postponement was not caused by me, nor by the House, but by the Government. Indeed, I pointed out at the time that this was deeply discourteous to the House, and I suggested that the permission of the House for that postponement should be sought. Regrettably, it was not. Over five weeks later, following a further five-day debate, the first meaningful vote was held on the 15th of January, which the Government lost by a margin of 230 votes, 
the largest in parliamentary history. Subsequently, the second meaningful vote was expected to take place in February, but once again there was a postponement. It finally happened only last Tuesday, the 12th of March. The government's motion on the deal was again very heavily defeated. In my judgment, that second meaningful vote motion did not fall foul of the Convention about matters already having been decided during the same session. This was because it could credibly be argued that it was a different proposition from that already rejected by the House on the 15th of January. It contained a number of legal changes which the government considered to be binding and which had been agreed with the European Union after further intensive discussions. Moreover, the government's second meaningful vote motion was accompanied by the publication of three new documents, two issued jointly with the EU and the third a unilateral declaration from the UK not objected to by it. In procedural terms, it was therefore quite proper that the debate and the second vote took place last week. The Government responded to its defeat, as it had promised to do, by scheduling debates about a no-deal Brexit and an Article 50 extension on the 13th and 14th of March, respectively. It has been strongly rumoured, though I have not received confirmation of this, that third and even possibly fourth meaningful vote motions will be attempted. Hence this statement, which is designed to signal what would be orderly and what would not. This is my conclusion. If the Government wishes to bring forward a new proposition that is neither the same nor substantially the same as that disposed of by the House on the 12th of March, this would be entirely in order. What the Government cannot legitimately do is to resubmit to the House the same proposition or substantially the same proposition as that of last week, which was rejected by 149 votes. This ruling should not be regarded as my last word on the subject. It is simply meant to indicate the test which the Government must meet in order for me to rule that a third meaningful vote can legitimately be held in this parliamentary session. Order. It should be noted that this statement was made without first informing the government, who were blindsided by the decision. There was only one government minister in the chamber for what was supposed to be a relatively calm day, and she responded by fleeing the House, leaving the rest of her party to try and figure out some way to deal with what they'd just heard. 
Burko is to be credited here with helping the UK government avoid the hypocrisy of forcing parliamentarians to change their minds over the course of many votes, while at the same time refusing to allow the British public that same option. What followed this statement was nearly an hour of speeches and posturing in Parliament, with a number of people asking the same questions over and over again. But what was revealed by those questions is easy to crystallize. The main points are that the change must be substantial, not just changes in the title or wording. It's not clear whether the Speaker would apply the same standard to another vote on a second referendum. He says he would have to decide when the legislation is presented to him, the vote on a second referendum having been defeated this week as an amendment to the No Deal Bill. This means that there are a number of things which might happen next. Theresa May might request an extension under Article 50, and reporting this evening from The Guardian reveals that the European Council appears to be amenable to such an arrangement, possibly an even longer extension than was originally discussed in our broadcast, one which might include members of the UK running for European office and taking their seats again in the European Parliament. But there have been other reports that Nigel Farage and other hard Brexiteers have been traveling Europe attempting to get their Eurosceptic allies in Italy and Hungary to veto any request for an extension, thus triggering a hard Brexit. It remains to be seen what the May government would do in such a scenario, either allowing a hard Brexit or a no-deal Brexit or revoking Article 50, now that they are not allowed to bring Theresa May's deal back to Parliament. Although it could be that if an Article 50 extension is blocked, Theresa May could attempt to bring her deal back into Parliament. She'd have to argue in this case that the blocking of an Article 50 extension is that substantive change. And it's not clear whether Speaker Burko would accept that argument. The problem is, even if this occurs, even if her deal is passed, it will take some time for Parliament to pass the various legislative bills necessary to bring itself in line with the terms of that Brexit deal. This, again, could bring about the scenario that the FT is calling Brexit by accident. Should such a threat by far-right European parties not materialize, the likely outcome is a Brexit deal that Parliament could actually agree with which most British commentators argue would mean a much, much closer relationship with the European Union, or perhaps the revocation of Article 50 altogether, and an end to this whole Brexit mess. But there is another way that Theresa May could attempt to bring her deal back to Parliament, and that is called the proroguing of Parliament. This dissolves and reforms Parliament without a general election. That will mean the previous session of Parliament ends, a new session begins, and the convention of not holding multiple parliamentary votes no longer applies because, as the Speaker said, it's a matter of bringing a vote forward more than once per session. After a proroguing, you're in a new session of Parliament. But this would require the Privy Council to advise the Queen to dissolve Parliament Parliament would have to be closed with a ceremony and then reopened with the Queen's speech. I have no idea whether the Privy Council would agree to that. It's made up of government ministers and opposition ministers and other people who have nothing to do with the government. And it's not clear how it operates or whether it would advise the Queen that she needed to prorogue Parliament. It's possible that it would. 
it's not really clear because this is an ancient monarchy that's trying to be democratic. But that pageantry, closing parliament, reopening it, having the Queen's speech, doing all these steps takes time. And at the time of this recording, it's 9 o'clock p.m. on March 18th on the U.S. East Coast, but 1 o'clock a.m. on March 19th in the U.K. They now have nine days and 21 hours to make this thing work. The clock is ticking, the deal is dead, and we just don't know what comes next. And while we hope that there won't be a no-deal Brexit by accident, I would like to thank our listeners for staying with us for this extra mad by accident here on Hopping Mad.